When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Talk of Shame edition. It's Wednesday, September 10th, 2014. Today's show is our annual morning after, as I said, Talk of Shame edition live from the Mohonk Mountain House in what town, Julia Turner? New Paltz, New York, Steve. This I'm is in your New neck Paltz. of the woods. I woke up in New Paltz. Okay, excellent. Uh, this has been ritualized as our annual call-in show. Uh, to paint the word picture a little bit, all three of us are wearing sunglasses right now, and we each hooked up last night with a floozy from the business side, I think. But, <laughs> but the good news is, is this year, finally, it was a different floozy for each of us. So <laughs> cheers. <laughs> Cheers to us, uh, progress. Um, anyway, um, in all seriousness, how bleary are we, Dana? I'll start with you. Well, I was just going to say that I'm, I'm grateful that for once I don't have to hide my problem on Mohonk Weekend. I can just <laughs> roll in, just as blasted as I want. Excellent. Yeah, it's sort of your, it's Dana's day is how we privately <laughs> think of it. But yeah, uh, next year it's an intervention, so get ready. Um, Julia, what about you? H- how heavy is the head that wears the crown? You know, I just went to bed at 11 p.m., Read a few pages of my book, just turned right in. I'm fresh as a daisy, Steve. <laughs> oh, God. Fresh as a daisy. Uh, that's what a daisy looks like. Okay, so um, <laughs> before we dig in uh, and take calls from our listeners, um, we have a bit of business, a bunch of business, actually. Julia, do you want to start with that? Yes. Yeah, we have two exciting live shows to talk about. And the first is our forthcoming live show in Los Angeles on October 8th, featuring, among other folks, the guys from Script Notes, the screenwriting podcast that both Dana and I are fans of. And we have a special guest tout today to uh, get our listeners riled for showing up to the show. Andy Bowers, step before the microphone. Thank you, Julia. Yes, I just wanted to give a short shout out to my fellow Angelinos. Even though I'm the executive producer of all these shows that come out of New York and Washington, I actually live in Los Angeles. I was born and raised there. I'm a fourth generation Southern Californian. And when we were talking about venues for these various shows that are coming up this fall, I said, please come to L.A. L.A. is a very cultured city despite what you may have heard, and uh, we will have a great turnout for the Culture Fest. Well, okay, and this is just for the Angelinos. Anyone else, you can skip ahead 30 seconds. But Angelinos, there's another show in San Francisco a few days before this one, and it is already sold out. The L.A. show, it is not sold out yet. Please don't embarrass me. Please make me look good here. Go buy tickets right now at slate.com slash LA Culture Fest. Slate.com slash LA Culture Fest. It's downtown, October 8th. It's going to be a great show. Do LA proud. Don't let San Francisco show us up. I'll see you there. Thanks. All right. A city chastened. A city chastened indeed. All right. We also have another live show coming up this fall in Boston on October 20th at the Wilbur Theater. I haven't been to the Wilbur Theater since I saw Ani DeFranco there in 1998. So get psyched, everybody. (laughs) Um, And uh, tickets will be available early with a 30% discount to Slate Plus members. They're going to go live uh, on Wednesday of this week. So if you haven't signed up for Plus yet, that's slate.com slash culture plus. And then tickets will be available to the general public on Friday. So again, that's Boston at the Wilbur Theater on October 20th. All right, guys, back to our callers. All right, well, why don't we listen to our first call? Hi, guys. This is Sarah calling from Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
Um, my question is sort of a parenting-related one, since all of you are parents with kids of different ages, um, and it's about kind of parenting and personal life balance. My sort of situation is that I'm a relatively new parent with a two-year-old and a second kid imminently on the way. So my sort of desperate plea is for some advice about maintaining sort of not only a relationship with your spouse or significant other, but also sort of a personal inner life while also trying to, you know, be the best parent you can. And it seems like the three of you all have really managed to do that just through your endorsements and what you talk about weekly. So I'm curious as to how how you accomplish that. That would be really helpful. Thank you. Um, first of all, I think we thought we were starting with a softball, but how do you maintain a successful inner life is like <laughs> kind of a big one to grapple with. But I will say my my recommendation for this is have a culture podcast because then it's your job every week to keep up on some culture and you have to get a babysitter to go see the movie on Monday night and sometimes you bring along your husband if you can find that babysitter and then you get a date plus you get to watch a movie uh, plus you get to keep up on culture. This is not very um, useful or replicable advice probably to everyone, but it has been very helpful to me. You guys are keeping me sane. This podcast is holding me together. That is a st- st- terrifying thought. Um, <laughs> I think my answer would be cultivate no inner life before having kids, and then you won't sacrifice one when you do. <laughs> um, also maybe have your marital relations be somewhat frozen in the middle and tattered around the edges first, and then the transition will be easy. Just start from a plateau of misery is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. And then you and, won't notice the shift. It won't stay level. It'll go down, but it won't go down quite as far. No, I, I, you know, this is an interesting question, right? Because there's a, partially a cultural pressure to derive all possible meaning from life from having kids and to, you know, in as much as it's possible, sacrifice virtually all of your human individuality to their well-being. You know, one thing I would say is that, and maybe this was a completely fatuous self-serving rationalization, but I always thought between the ages of, I'm mean, going to just throw out a number, like let's say zero and eight, or 12, or whatever it is, you know, you, you are your child's world, right? I mean, I mean, certainly between the ages of zero months and 40 months, a mother and to a degree a father really literally are a child's entire existential horizon. And then slowly, 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 that becomes less and less the case. And at a certain age, your child becomes capable of putting you in a worldly context because you're no longer the totality of their world. You want to be someone who did, whose life didn't stop entirely for them. So in a weird way, you make this ongoing trade-off that doesn't feel to them to be in their immediate benefit, but is in their long-term benefit. Because when they hit adolescence and they're inclined to look at you and call you out as a complete empty fraud, you're less inclined to turn to them and say, it's because I had fucking kids. <laughs> That, that was philosophical, but not practical. <laughs> I actually have some practice. I think everything you just said is profoundly true. And I think especially if the caller, Sarah, has a three-year-old and is about to have another infant, she's going to pretty much have to write off, you know, riffling through large tomes for a little while. But my practical advice would be, and it's not going to be so easy on your body, but at some point when your kids get regular sleeping habits, you either have to wake up early or stay up late, yeah. right? I mean, if you really want an inner life and you want that time to, you know, read or watch a movie that only you care about or, you know, listen to your music without anyone interrupting you, you're going to have to sacrifice sleep. And with the baby the age that hers is, she's going to be sacrificing it anyway, so I can't pile more on top. I think you should guiltlessly soldier on as best you can until they have sleep habits and then figure out your time and do it. That's my advice. I also would say like leave your kids behind for a weekend, like do it on your anniversary or go to a wedding or just like, it's good to have time being a grown up with your partner. But that still is bonding with your partner, which important as it is, it doesn't provide that thing. You know, I know exactly what she means about the inner life. And I was so used to, I had kids so late and I was so used to having vast stretches of time to just read and walk and stare contemplatively out of cafe windows. And that stuff is just like (laughs) long gone. The thing I, the thing I miss is the staring at the wall time. I don't have staring at the wall time. Like I used to have a roommate and we would watch, we watched the complete seven seasons of Buffy all in a, in a row, like one in one four-month stretch. And we, so we would watch an episode or two before bed, and she would be 60-0. Like, we'd turn it off, credits would roll, and she would, like, already have a toothbrush in her mouth and, like, lights out and in bed, you know, 60 seconds later. And I would just kind of sit in the same chair, like, looking at the closed TV and just kind of, like, process my day for 25 minutes before I went 
and rustled myself into bed. And I, there's no, I'd never do that anymore. I miss that time. What I love about that, uh, a vignette is that it draws this great distinction between the thing that you miss isn't the binge watching of Buffy, though you may miss that too, right? What you really miss is that purely contemplative moment without interruption because the roommate's asleep. So having kids in a way makes that distinction, which can get muddled, right? Which is like really doing something for your inner self and like getting a latte whenever you want and watching, you know, a TV show whenever you want. Like you suddenly, that's a very enforceable and distinct, you know, division once you have kids, right? Because you can kind of do the Buffy maybe a little bit, but it's something is more challenging about finding that, you know, like one of my favorite things about the Mohonk retreat is that it, it, at the end of it, it gives me that melancholy nine-year-old whose birthday party has ended feeling. <laughs> like, you know, something goes a little concave inside of me, and I just feel bereft, and I go to the Rosendale Cafe one town over and eat lunch alone. And, <laughs> and it's just like there is something about that that's even better than the latte whenever you want to end Buffy. Yeah. No, it's true. I also I, I feel like this is a place here where I should acknowledge not a critique, I think a commentary on how my podcasting style changed after I returned from maternity leave that was issued by our fellow podcaster, Noreen Malone, was out somewhere and saw my husband and said, I really like Julia's free jazz endorsements that she got back. They're a little bit like weird. And it's like, right, because I don't watch TV shows anymore. I've turned into you guys. I used to be able to sneer at you guys for not keeping up with everything. And now I'm like, I'm like, I really, I'm going to endorse this potted plant this week. <laughs> anyway, so the free jazz, it's been an in-joke in my house, but now I share it with you and our listeners. The Julia Turner free jazz endorsement is a, is a product of my parenting life, I think. Okay. Can we agree we've done some justice to this question? Should we move on to another one? Let's move on. All right. Excellent. Let's, uh, let's hear the next call. Hi, this is James in Seattle, Washington, and I have a question for the call-in question show. Here's a hypothetical situation. You have the chance to become instantly fluent in any language in the world, kind of like Keanu Reeves learns Kung Fu in The Matrix, but with a language. The catch is that you will only be fluent for seven days. So after 168 hours, you will lose all ability to speak this other language, or you will lose all ability back to whatever, however much you can do right now. So the question is, what language do you choose to learn, and what do you do with your seven days of fluency? Thanks. My gosh, this is my dream. I wish this were true. Maybe James is like a genie, and we can actually do this. And yet losing it, it's like so... um this is it's so flowers for Algernon though, right? Like you get the superpower and then you have the horrible, you know, experience of losing it. Um but anyway, I'm curious what you know, let's start with the polymathic Danny I don't Stevens. know. It's a crazy question. I wish I wish that the asker were here for further interrogation because the whole conceptual framework of the question to me changes which language it would be. Hmm. You know, there's some languages that I would love to learn, but I want to know them forever, you know, and I don't want to give up after seven days. I think because of that framework, I would choose a language that would be di- very difficult to learn otherwise and that would let me glimpse a culture that I would never otherwise see. Mm-hmm. Um, if, it, if I could go back in time, if we could bundle in some time travel, I would learn like ancient Greek or mm-hmm. proto-Indo-European or something and just like go like, experience the language at its roots. But since we don't have time travel included, I'm going to say Japanese because that seems very hard to learn. It seems very interesting to tour around Japan. But I think I, think I could live with letting it go after seven days. Yeah, I think proto-European has to go sit over there in the corner with birdsong and the gamelan for a little while. <laughs> we'll let it know when it can come back. No, should we but, just add a time travel element to all the questions we get today? <laughs> it's like, well, of course, we have to consider if time travel were included. <laughs> it's not just like a default like level up. Let's just factor that in yeah, okay. as a default. This is right. a tough question for you to answer, by the way, because it only takes you 14 days to learn a language. Right? <laughs> Uh, Julia, what what do you think? Well, wait, wait. How many languages do you know, Dana? I don't know that many languages. But you that are many. like a comparative literature PhD. Like you, I mean, I I know. I would know. say that I know Portuguese and French. I can speak them. I've taught them. You know, I have some level of fluency. Although I would need to brush them up. Spanish, I can understand because of the Portuguese, and that's about it. Well, I think my choice here, it is it is a strange construct. I studied Chinese for a year, Mandarin, and it was super interesting. And I live in Chinatown in New York. And I think that it would be great to 
instantly know Chinese and then do a big tour of China, basically. I mean, I really want to go there. I'm super interested in the culture because of the aforementioned children, like my year abroad in China that I thought I was going to have when I was 19. Doesn't, doesn't seem like it's on the horizon anytime soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have another 10 or 15 years. Um, so th- that's like a place and a culture I'm super interested in. And it was super tantalizing to get the beginnings of that language. Like it works in such an interesting way. The the mechanics of it and the syntax of it and the grammar of it are pr- totally different um, and interesting from the other Romance languages I've studied. So I guess that that's kind of a boring answer. I, or, you know, the other one, I guess, would be Hindi. Like, mm. Yeah, it seems like the seven days limitation makes you want to go somewhere farther outside of your comfort zone, right? Okay, well, that's, yeah, I'll, 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 um, uh, I'll gainsay that a little bit. And uh, mine would be German. Um, mm. couple, first is that if you've ever read the novel White Noise, which is a brilliant novel by Don DeLillo, there's a hugely funny set piece in it in which this professor... Who's, he's a professor of Hitler studies, which he has the virtue also of having invented. And so he's become an eminence in the field without ever learning German. And he's kept it secret from the <laughs> academic community. And if he's ever exposed, he's in terrible trouble. And there are these hilarious scenes of him trying to learn it. And he's like literally trying to peer down the throat of the person teaching him in order to see where these guttural <laughs> mangled sounds come from. And uh, anyway, uh, I, I've had a similar experience trying to learn German. I, it, I, it, I find it, you know, it would take an, an amount of work and intelligence that I don't have. But I, I, the reason I'd like to know it and the reason why I could accept knowing it only for seven days is I have a very specific objective in the German language. The first would be to read Nietzsche in the original, right? Just, I mean, the most alarming, startling disruptive thinker who ever lived. He's so Germanic. Uh, He's responding so deeply and intimately to a Germanic tradition in philosophy. He's both part of it and exploding it. It would just be amazing to me to have that The seven-day thing makes that too heartbreaking. I thought about languages that I would would love to master the literature Mm -hmm. in, like German, but but then I just feel like that flowers for Algernon moment that the Nietzsche book is slowly becoming more and more incomprehensible. It's too sad. You don't have the memory of it, I guess. And uh, Okay, but, but the second more more definite objective would be I'd want to read not only Heidegger, but I'd want to read about the Heidegger controversy, which is once again boiling over, right? There's a big conference at CUNY this week. Uh, His Black Notebooks books are about to be published. And there are a lot of people, especially the people who want to indict Heidegger as a Nazi. I mean, he was a Nazi and he deserves to be morally, you know, um, reprimanded through all of history for it, uh, execrated, really, through all of history for it. But the question of how much that implicates his philosophy and implicates the adherence of Heideggerians, to me, is an open and interesting one. And I'm just at this total disadvantage to people who can read it in the original. And I would love to take seven days, read the notebooks, which are as of now untranslated, um, uh, and all the other uh, arcana that are used to say, look, there's a total connection, you know, both ways between Nazism and, and, and Heideggerian philosophy, which may be true. I would want it to not be true, but I'd be willing to accept it, obviously, if it were true and, and ignore Heidegger for the rest of my life. But I don't know it to be true because there's this barrier between me and it. And once I had that knowledge... Even in my Algernon moment, I would at least be able to make an argument. You know, I'm imagining your your seven your your clock begins ticking for your seven days, and you just disappear into a room with like fifty <laughs> giant German tomes. I also love like winning arguments in the, in some imaginary future, in which I say during the seven days that I was fluent in. <laughs> All right. All right. I think we can go. Yeah. Next one. Third call. All right. Here we go. Hey guys, it's Jordan in Boston, and I'm just wondering this time of year, is the film festival season, we just had Telluride, Toronto's coming up, New York Film Festival in a week or so, and I'm wondering, there are so many different reactions that come out of these festivals, and unfortunately, I think uh, a lot of them are geared toward the Oscars and what film is getting the most buzz. And maybe Dana in particular could comment on this, but how much attention should someone who's a film lover like myself give these sort of festivals? I mean, I'm excited about a lot of these movies that are that are premiering, but at the same time, I feel like the only reactions I can find most of the time are so-and-so is going to get a Best Actor nomination, and this film is a lock for a Best Picture nomination. And as accurate as those have perhaps turned out to be in the past, it's 
not something I'm particularly interested in, a, in a, as a film fan. So do you guys take excitement in following these sort of film festivals, or is it something that maybe we should just put off until the film is actually released? Thanks so much. Yeah, I think I'm probably the same kind of film goer as Jordan. I mean, I would I would sort of say, based on that question, you can dismiss fil- film festival dispatches if they're not interesting to you. That said, I don't usually go to film festivals because, A, Slate doesn't really cover them for the very reasons that he's mentioning. They often show movies months before they're distributed or before they're even, they have distribution. And so it is sort of a connoisseurs and critics affair. And Personally, for myself, I don't like to know that much about movies before I see them. I hate festival tweets, which to me always have this sort of, you know, I'm in Venice and you're not kind of tinge to them. That said, I got sent to Sundance this year, not by Slate, but by Sundance because I was on a jury in January of 2014. And it was a great experience in terms of just getting a sort of a view of what was coming out for the rest of the year. So in terms of sort of like having things in my pocket, you know, I've seen Boyhood six months before it comes out so I can put some thought into it. That was great. But as far as how you transmit that connoisseur's culture to just the culture of film con- consumers who are waiting for the movies to arrive in theaters, yeah, yeah, I think it's it's too early to start caring. It's too awards focused, and it's just part of that whole gearing up of the industry for its annual rights of self congratulation, mm-hmm. and it's not the funnest part of film going. But I, but I have a question, I've, and I've w- wanted to ask you this for a long time: is there is there a festival goggles? that are like the rough equivalent of like the beer goggles I was wearing at three o'clock in the morning this morning. <laughs> and, and do you see the movie in a different way? It's, it's, I mean, would that be in the wild? I guess be, seeing it in the wild would be just going to a multiplex and paying for it. Like, you know, I often find that there's this huge grade inflation sometimes when people see things at a festival. They're sort of rooting for it. And so yeah, on. I think that's true, especially at certain glamorous festivals like at Cannes or Telluride or something. You know, at places that really do have a sort of I'm here and you're not glamour about them, mm-hmm. there probably is some kind of rosy grade inflation and a little bit of a sense of I have to have an intense experience here because I came all the way to this festival. You know, yes. I have to see something brilliant. And I'm also part of the community. I'm now part of the community that produces movies. I mean, what does the or I guess I'm asking is the critic susceptible to those seductions? Like, do they sometimes sit you at a table with Brad Pitt? And I mean, I'm not enough of a festival goer to respond to that. I really yeah. Sundance was literally my first time at a big industry festival. Yeah. You know, actually, where you actually go go to a hotel and go to movies all day. I'll go to the New York Film Festival or something in town. But yeah, it it, it has a kind of exoticism that was an interesting novelty for the first time but i would say in general that it's a little bit too much interpenetration of of industry and pr and and criticism to quite know what to do also how could you write valuable film criticism from a festival i can't imagine mm-hmm. you're spending the whole time logistically planning your day and seeing movies and waiting on lines and at the very most you can just you know tap out a quick blurb here and there but shouldn't film fans be excited about festivals because of the role that they play in discovering Movies. I mean, I have you know several friends who are young filmmakers and directors whose films have ended up in these festivals, and that's how they've been discovered, and that's how they've gotten distribution. And like the festivals, just if you're like re- looking at Lena Dunham's Instagram, seem you know swishy and and off-putting. But if you're thinking about it from the perspective of how new talent gets discovered, aren't they? kind of important? Yeah, I mean, they're certainly important. You know, they're, they're part of the whole machine of the industry, which I don't mean to completely disdain. If it weren't for festivals, you know, distributors wouldn't be able to see interesting small things that they might not know about and be able to distribute, and we wouldn't be able to see them. And so there's important work going on there in terms of, you know, getting movies out to the public. And I'm sure if you're a young filmmaker who's got a film there, it's a whole different feeling than somebody like me who's trying to, you know, create decent prose. Like you're there having your work recognized, and that has to feel really good. Yeah, I got to go to a screening a couple of years ago with a friend of mine whose movie was at South by Southwest, and it was just like kind of amazing to be in that theater and watch him watch people watch it for the first time. I think he like left the theater in the middle because he was like too nervous. But you know, I have no desire ever to go to a film festival like and see multiple movies in a row in one day. That's just like too much for my brain as a movie consumer. But to see it from his perspective was totally thrilling and fun. I have to say, I totally enjoyed going to Sundance as a jury member, but that's a very, very different experience. I wasn't responsible for writing anything every day, you know, and you're sort of a VIP, like you get taken to the screenings and, you know, you're not sort of schlepping by bus from place to place. judgment. Yeah, exactly. No, it was, that was like the firmament of festival going. And still, I felt like I enjoyed it, but I don't feel driven to attend every film festival. You know, it's funny, it's speculated about the wine critic Robert Parker that one of the reasons he so favors 
Bordeaux, uh, French Bordeaux over Burgundy and California Cabernets over Pinots from Oregon and California uh, is because he tastes so many wines that his, at a, beyond a certain point, your palate burns out and you need a wine to be huge in the sense of like large alcohol and a ton of fruit forward on the palate in order just to experience it and this in turn has shaped the way like people plant vineyards like it seems to me there must be something similar as a film critic not not even at a festival just what is it like just to see these movies on a professional basis an ongoing basis all the time i mean at a certain point do you want to just like palate cleanse and not watch any movies or or you know i don't know stick your head in the sand and twirl (laughs) Uh, that's a whole different question, but yeah, yeah, I definitely feel the need to palate cleanse. I, I, I regularly feel the need to palate cleanse and just yeah. have to try to do it, you know, on the fly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, why don't we, why don't we bump up to the next call? All right. Hi guys. My name is Sam Fayez and I'm calling from New York city. I'm obviously a huge fan of the show. Uh, anyways, I was uh, recently reading, uh, the top 10 essays written since 1950, which was uh, a topic of one of your past shows. And I got to Susan Pontag's notes on camp in which she sort of outlines the cultural contours of what it means to be campy or camp in a post-war uh, cultural milieu. Anyways, it got me thinking, if you individual cultural gabbers had to write an essay on the most salient cultural sensibility of our day, what would it be and why? Thanks very much, and uh, keep up the great work. Take care. I think Steve has to answer this one first because this, Steve, this is the sort of piece you would actually write. This is like, like I'm going to take whatever you say now as your first assignment for once you turn in your book. I think it's the kind of piece that I could convince an editor to assign me, whether I would write it as always about a 2080 proposition. But um, uh, okay, I'll dig right in. Um, so when I was a kid or adolescent, I used to go over to friends' houses, um, and if the parents had uh, books on their shelves, almost invariably you would find a copy of a book called The Hidden Persuaders by Vance Packard. And Vance Packard had pretty much all that disappeared from the cultural consciousness by the time I was an adolescent in the 80s, um, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, But this book seemed to be ubiquitous on the shelves of people who were then over the age of 40, so it must have been a huge bestseller. Um, you know, similarly, my children will go to the houses of friends and there will be bookshelves and they'll see the tipping point. Now, The Hidden Provide Malcolm Gladwell. So the Vance Packard book is basically an argument about how sinister marketing is and advertising has become at that point in the 50s or 60s. Uh, and basically saying that that uh, that it, it appeals to one's semi-conscious mind, it stimulates false desires, and ultimately it undermines our collective capacity to sustain a public sphere uh, governed by reason, right? Well, Malcolm Gladwell is the Vance Packard of his day. If you just simply, the exact equivalence if you just reverse all polarities, right? In effect, what he is, is he's the grand wizard marketer, marketer of marketing. And he took all of these residual fears that you know, kind of high modernist American thinkers, intellectuals had about marketing and uh, and advertising and cor- kind of corporate, you know, the the way corporations stimulate desire and shape public debate, um, and basically said they're not sinister at all, and made virality itself a kind of um, virtue into a, into a kind of inherent virtue that can't really be disciplined by any priestly or extrin- extrinsic you know, you know, standard. And um, so I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with Malcolm Gladwell. I think he's kind of the great, you know, neoliberal, you know, apologist in a way. And he, for better and for worse, embodies this position that, you know, um, incorporates into it, you know, this kind of very populist sociology, neuroscience, you know, it's very empirically driven, data driven, it seems purely factual, but in essence is an argument for modes of persuasion that people uh, used to find suspicious, at least. But so, but Malcolm Gladwell isn't a sensibility. Oh, he's totally a sensibility. Are you kidding? 
Absolutely okay. is okay. a sensibility. Okay. And you see it every expressed everywhere. I mean, it's like it seeped into the culture at large via other venues since. But like Freakonomics and, you know, uh, I mean, everyone who's kind of uh, name-checking neuroscience and sociology and, you know, this data, you know, supposedly data-driven arguments, all of that derives from the early successes of, of Malcolm Gladwell. I mean, if the tipping point hadn't been a huge bestseller, we wouldn't be seeing all these books in its way. Well, it's more that he successfully synthesized all mm-hmm. of those currents in thought, right? And kind of brought together marketing and neuroscience and psychology and all of those things in some palatable and easily accessible way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's still not an abstract noun like camp, but I'll, I'll allow we it. We live in the Gladwellian era. So that's your contention. It is. But I have it. a better answer now, now that I think about it. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we can go around twice. Yes, exactly. Dana, what have you got? I don't know. See, unlike Steve, this is the kind of question that always sends me scurrying, like the big what do we live in the age of kind of question. I, I never know how to formulate it. I mean, I think my response would be something that is really obvious, but I think is, is the most evident change in my way of, of living over the last 15 years or so, which is just that we live in the age of sort of magpie information consumption and that the world more than ever has become this, you know, endless huge stream of data that we can all access and repurpose and put together in the way we want, which also has a better and a worse, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, rather than perceiving of the world as something that we have to go out to, we perceive it as something that comes to us and that we then pick and choose and consume from. It's interesting. I have two answers here, and one is very similar to yours, Dana. I think you could do notes on data. I mean, just there is more data, and then there is a cult around data, which is kind of related to your topic too, Steve. But the 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 notion that, you know, even as a magazine editor, like we have more data on what our readers read and what they like and what they respond to and what they spend a lot long time, you know, reading and what they spend less time reading and what they click on and which headlines work and what size the image should be. I mean, there's so much data. Like, to be a magazine editor on the Internet right now as opposed to being a print magazine editor 25 years ago, you know, you threw someone on the cover, you figured out whether people bought it on the newsstand or not. You never knew whether they really loved it for that, you know, the the lead feature about X or the, you know, profile in the back about Y, apart from, like, a few letters that would get snail mailed in. And so the question of how do you incorporate that data into your decision making without becoming a complete data fanatic Mm. is totally interesting and that's the editorial way that it touches on my life but I feel like that's happening everywhere in the culture in all kinds of industries and creative industries in you know more more typically data driven industries so there's data the other one I think you could do is uh, notes on outrage I feel like we live in a moment of high dudgeon and the whys and wherefores of that would be interesting to explore Mm. Uh, this is a big question, so I hope people won't mind that I gas on a little bit further. I mean, I think what I would what I would revisit in Gladwell for just one second, what I would say is it went beyond marketing and into the market. I mean, you you would say data, and I would agree with you, um, but I would add to that the the overarching conceptual framework for understanding this you know otherwise seemingly undifferentiated mass of informa- raw information is the market like the market is the thing that shapes everyone's understanding of common human reality now and i i certainly implied in malcolm's work is that there are neutral and alg- like like morally neutral algorithmic processes for creating you know unguided processes for creating Outcome, success and failure outcomes, which is kind of quasi-Darwinian. And that leads me to another name, which is, I would say, a, a couple of the other sensibilities that are really defining of our time would be Richard Dawkins, the cult of Dawkins, and the notion of unguided Darwinian processes producing outcomes, including human consciousness and reality. The other one I would say is Warhol. You know, Warhol had really fallen into uh, not, not disrepute, but he was becoming an irrelevant artist in the '80s. You know, because he considered everyone considered he'd done his best work in the '60s. You know, he cameoed on the Love Boat. His he himself in his diaries lamented that his prices were um, lagging far behind his pop artist contemporaries Rauschenberg and Johns, which of course is not nearly the case anymore. Um, and uh, and he, he enjoyed this massive revival right around the neoliberal turn, like in the 80s. And he died, I think, in 87 or 88. In 89, there was a huge retrospective for him, either at MoMA or the Met. I can't remember. It may actually have been the Met. And from that point on, Warhol became not only a dominant, like the most dominant artist of the second half of the century, 20th century without question. I mean, you know, rivaling what Picasso was to the first half of the 20th century. He became 
what the air that we breathe, right? Like the celebritification, you know, the, the disappearing hand of the artist. It's, of course, what gives us coons, but way more than that, it gives us no language by which to say coons is a fraud, which I think is interesting relative to how people have been forced to respond to the coons exhibit, more of which later in my endorsement, but anyway. All right. All right, excellent. Let's, uh, let's hear the next call. Hi, my name is Brett. I'm calling from New York. I just want to say thank you for uh, doing the uh, bit you did on children's literature. As a father of a small child, I was uh, had been hoping that you would do that. Um, and I sort of even went as far as buying Little Fur Family and singing the song in the prescribed fashion. I was actually wanting to ask you uh, to extend that conversation a little bit about television as to, um, in terms of early childhood, as to what you let your children watch, whether you what let them watch at all, what you thought was great. Did you have preconceived ideas about, um, you know, prohibiting television and then, like the rest of us, just giving up um, because there are too many hours in a day? Um, basically... Uh, I'm hoping you'll you'll, uh, focus this, as my child is two and a half years old, on something that I can uh, practically um, take and show him. Um, So far, I'm at Sesame Street, Elmo level, went to Bugs Bunny, but felt that that was too, uh, maybe too old for him. Uh, Yeah, I just want to know what it is that you love, recommend, or don't show at all. Okay, thanks. Ooh, I'm excited about hearing the answer to this one because we are in the phase of not letting our kids watch television before we go over that waterfall into letting them watch television, which we have no pretensions that we won't do at some point. But I don't know when to do it or what you're supposed to show them or anything. What's the, what, what did you guys do? Oh, I'm so lateraling this one to Dana Stevens. <laughs> well, I can, I can respond scientifically in Gladwellian fashion to your query about when you should start, at least according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. Your child should be two before they have any screen time because supposedly their brain can't process the images or something, whatever. It sounds a little Waldorfy to me, and I don't think there's any harm in a younger kid watching. But I think when your kid does start to watch... I would recommend for your boys and for this guy that Miyazaki be their first film. Whoa, would you? Do you hear whoa. me on that? That's, my, I'm like not sure. I, Miyazaki kind of freaks me out. Well, maybe if you're not a fan yourself and you don't think you're going to love watching it with them, but My Neighbor Totoro is the first film my daughter watched when she was probably two, two and a half in there somewhere. And it is still one of her favorite movies and one of our favorite movies. And I feel like to me, it's, it is now like a, a source of infinite richness and where I can watch any scene from it. We should say that that's in Proto-Indo-European, but it is subtitled. <laughs> I really would go with Tarkovsky as a first <laughs> director, author. You guys don't understand Miyazaki, this particular Miyazaki, the little kid Miyazaki, of which my neighbor Totoro is, I think, the pinnacle, is like a gentle little fairy tale. The reason it should be your fr- kid's first movie is that there's nothing freaky about it. It's essentially about living the fantasy of having your own giant, puffy, gray teddy bear that lives in the woods that you can go cuddle with. It's such a wonderful no, first like, movie. There's no, haunting, shape-shifting, weird ghoul in the background <laughs> who, like, jump up and, like, give you sparkly candy that evaporates into the night or like whatever the hell happens in You're thinking movie. of Spirited Away. I think that all happens in Spirited Can I Away. Just but that never, happens in a kid's brain every day. I've never loved anything more than your haunting, willowy, wood ghoul hand gesture. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, that was awesome. That is Slate Triple Plus right there. Oh my lord. Um... Let me just begin by saying I'm not quite sure what you start them on, but whatever you do, keep them the fuck away from Teletubbies, which is brain crack for little kids. It just seems wrong to expose them to it. (laughs) I guess this is the wrong time to say that I still sometimes pop in the old VHS of Teletubbies. (laughs) (laughs) Just for yourself? I enjoy going to that strange mental zone. I guess I was never a club kid going to raves, but I can I can live it all through Teletubbies. <laughs> oh my God, this Dana, is your parental <laughs> culture experience. It's so much worse than I ever thought. When everyone Please. else goes to bed, you just like that's my inner life. On Please, please tell me you spark up some 420 before you do that. Dana. My like, neon pacifier on a chain is just waiting for me. At least be totally fucked up on an illegal drug before you do that. <laughs> That's the great thing about Teletubbies. It obviates the need for any That's substance true. whatsoever. That's true. I can't really recall what... Well, in terms of policy, I kind of agree, like, you know, probably not 
totally poisonous to let them see something before the age of two, but I don't think my what's kids the point? really... Yeah, yeah, what's the point? And it's probably better not to, and why not? Um, and uh, then after that, you know, kind of restrict, pretty restricted. I would say another big thing is not live feed TV with commercials. I mean, that, that, you know, I, I, I hate to be puritanical about it but, but it's it, so easy to avoid that now it's like exactly. why do it no exactly and and and, and right, it hardly needs to be said but but i would say that that is a big one like no, no, the commercials are just awful and the manipulations of it are awful as they get older i have reservations about some of the um you know disney programming some of which can be quite good but 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 a lot of it or too much of it is designed in a very specific way you have a 15 year old actress playing a 12 year old girl appealing to the faux mature sensibilities of the nine-year-old audience, right? And so there's this kind of sassy equals mature in the mind of a nine-year-old girl, especially as they start watching these shows and and you get an af- a set of affectations and you don't know where they come from and then you watch 10 minutes of iCarly, which is in some ways a supremely intelligent and funny show, but it does encourage your kid to think that they're grown-up, even though ironically there are no grown-ups depicted in this TV series, right? Like, anyway, enough said. But um, as to what was admirable and likable on television, I'm trying to remember. I mean, my kids watch stuff that I thought was was wonderful. I mean, in all seriousness, Miyazaki is great. I feel like we didn't do that much TV, but what about movies? I mean, you have to have Mary Poppins, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, I would say very early on, my kids responded to the Marx Brothers uh, and Buster Keaton, um, the stuff like that, it really it wor- it hits them so It's true. There's no one alive who doesn't get why Buster Keaton is funny. Exactly. Yeah. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take these suggestions and put them in the vault for the next six months. Then I'll crack them out. All right. Next question. Yeah. Hi. I'm Laura in Wisconsin. I'm 27, and all of a sudden, I like the taste of tea, and I'm using eye cream and thinking of starting a garden. So I was wondering what your favorite things about getting old are. Thanks. Bye. That was beautiful and concise. Dana, what you... sells me on that question is the three things that mark this 27-year-old as now getting old. I love it. Tea, eye cream, and starting a garden. Hello, Grandma. It's <laughs> 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 a little old. I get it. I get it. I, starting to use eye cream is like a total... Rite of passage. I still don't really use eye cream. Yeah, me either. Why, why do your eyes need a special cream? I guess just looking at me will tell you the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like crow's feet are the best thing, the best like aging face thing. Yeah, they're very French. Crow's feet are so like elegant and lovely. Gotta have your crow's feet. Um, what are your favorite things about getting old, Steve? You're right. the oldest. I know, I am. Um, my favorite things about getting old are... You know, the youngins get up and give me a seat on the subway. No, I mean, I think it's you you come into all of the young, you know, young fogey opinions that you've held your entire life and you start to increasingly air them with a sense of impunity, though, in fact, you have none of the impunity that you're assigning to yourself internally. Um, I don't know. I, I almost want to punt on this one because the sort of serious answer would be... You know, you or let me let me let me repeat an anecdote that when I heard it, I didn't believe it. But now that I am the age I am, I totally believe it. Um, my wife went out to lunch with a mentor of hers, and he told her a story about a lunch that he had just been to the day before with his mother, who, you know, so he was probably in his sixties, and I think she was in her eighties or nineties. You know, she went to the like Cosmopolitan Club for her you know annual lunch with old friends or whatever, and they were all sitting around talking about if they could be any age again, what age would it be? And what I like about getting older is how that answer grows along with you, because they all said they wanted to be 60. None of them said they wanted to be 35. And the reason they gave was, you know, wisdom isn't this faked compensation that you claim for yourself, even though you feel like you've lost all of the good things in life. It actually is this wonderful, it is wonderful to shed some of your dopiness and lostness and they said 60 was the age where they still fully had their health they could do all of the things that they physically wanted to do in their lives and had reached a kind of plateau of human wisdom and maturity and that having those two things together made being you know between the ages of 55 and 65 or 55 and 70 the heart of life that was life that was when life was the best because you had perspective you knew who you were 
I mean, think about how vulnerable you are to the world when you're younger. You tend to forget that. You really, you allow too many things to shape and reshape your inner life and your sense of yourself that are contingent and worthless. And and so, ah, it's such a horrible answer, but it's true. I just think, you know. Wisdom. You, you wisdom. Oh, shoot me now. No, oh, I my like God. It. Glue factory. I like it. I like that answer. <laughs> that is so, I find that so surprising and beautiful that they all chose that same zone. Yeah, it's not a true story. Dana, <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Uh, I don't know. Maybe my answer is changed by Steve's answer. That's so great. I mean, my answer was just going to spark off a much less kind of personal anecdote, which is that I was leafing through a Diane Keaton book in a bookstore. She has a new kind of memoir, you know, like sort of style guide thing out. And much as I love Diane Keaton, she's not a writer in any way. It seemed like a very sort of gushy, slightly name droppy book. But she had a little tossed off sentence about getting older that really moved me. And I've thought about it since that was something like when I was younger, you know, she was talking about her days as a Broadway actress and sort of trying to make it big and trying out for roles. And it was something along the lines of, I'll, I'll paraphrase it badly, but when I was younger, I wanted to be the most beautiful, sparkly thing in the room. I was very concerned that sort of I was the beautiful thing. And now that I'm older, I, I want to see the beauty outside of me. You know, it was just the idea that, you know, you, have, you, don't, you can stop being the, sort of the source, the narcissistic source of admiration and start to admire the world around you. And that's maybe a little related to what you just described. That's lovely, yeah. Yeah. Diane Keaton for the win. Um, my idea is just as familiar, but I don't have a charming anecdote to go with it. <laughs> I don't think. But I just think the best thing about getting older is you get so much centered in your own skin. Like you're, I mean, it's a, it's a different way of saying, I think, the same thing you said, Steve. But you're, you just know who you are. You know how you feel about things. And you're not constantly checking that against... I think when you're young you're still trying to figure out what kind of person you're going to be. And so you have feelings and then you have a sense of who you want to be. And then you have a sense of who the people around you think you should be. And you're always kind of trying to triangulate between those things and square them up and figure out where to, to, to center yourself. And it just feels like as you get older, you're just like, Oh no, I just, I, I have my views. I have my perspective. I am who I am. That's going to go over great with some people and not with others. And that's fine. And that improves your relationship so much, too. If you can walk into a room thinking, I know who I am, and now let me find out who these people are, you know, it's completely different than the calculus you make or I made when I was 23, when I walk in and think, in some unconscious jumble, you know, who am I? Who can I impress? Who scares me? You know, it right. all that you see the world more, I think, as an, as an antagonist and less as like a place that you can move freely in, maybe. It's interesting because that comes back to the Diane Keaton idea, too, of like, are you are you so confused about yourself when you're younger that you have to be a little bit of a narcissist? Like you have to, you have to get caught up in your own brain and your own hangups and you have a less clear vision of everything around you. Right. You can't just fast forward to that place. You do have to actually create a self, right? So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's important. Like the definition of narcissism is self-centeredness without a self. Right. And people sort of forget the second half of that definition, you know, which is a recipe for, disappointment bordering on rage and to lose that is one of life's great you know gifts this has gotten kind of philosophical and profound you guys <laughs> God, uh, shoot us now all of us we're like old freaking horses it's now. the lakeside air we're just in rockers <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> just thinking about life i like thinking about life with you guys all right last question hi culture gab fest this is peter from dc And my question is, have you ever considered something for the endorsement segment and then decided to just keep it for yourself? Perhaps in the more intimate setting of the slate retreat, you'd be willing to share with us what that something is. Thanks. I've never told you guys even if I've done that. (laughs) Have you? I mean, I guess I feel like I'm probably always doing that on some small level. There's There are probably little revelations that I have that are somehow too nuanced or personal or sort of hard to describe briefly to make it into endorsements. So, yeah, I think my answer would be yes, and I'm still keeping them to myself. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Steve? No. <laughs> For the purposes of this conversation. <laughs> I'll never tell. All right. Well, we uh, survived another year at Mohonk, uh, Dana. Let's uh, not to target you. 
Dana made it's like Keith Richards. Or something. I've turned you into Keith Richards in my mind. Yeah, my handlers rolled me out of bed and brought me in. I don't know if I've ever said this into a microphone, but I honestly don't know whether I've ever seen you take a drink one time. I, I just swilled down three glasses of wine last night. Oh, wow. Okay, well. Um, anyway, uh, now is the moment in our show where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Well, because we were just so withholding in that very sweet question about whether we ever withhold endorsements, I will endorse, I will make an intimate endorsement today. So I had various sort of, you know, mediocre cultural products I could have reported on. But honestly, even though this is sort of a callback to some earlier discussions, either in endorsements or in in Audible that we've had on on the GabFest, I feel the need to reveal to you all, Steve, you know this already, that last week in a plane somewhere over Utah, I finished Moby Dick. (laughs) Yeah. Yay. (laughs) So I feel like the listeners who know that I've been reading that book only on vacation for the last five years and sort of struggling, not struggling, pleasurably slipping back down the mountain and climbing back up a little bit again and just finding my way through that huge digressive mountain of a book. It was so incredible to finish it in particular. Actually, I do have it within Moby Dick. I'm endorsing the last three chapters, which Steve and I just discussed yesterday at lunch, which are this incredible marvel of synthesis where this book that's the most digressive thing you've ever read that's been going on for 400 pages about blubber ambergris. rendering and yeah ambergris and the whiteness of the whale and just every single chapter goes off on some complete mental rabbit hole but there are also all the while there are characters and themes being introduced right and kind of linguistic you know tropes being put into play and all of that stuff in the last three chapters which comprise the three final days of hunting of the whale i think they're called first day of the hunt second day of the hunt third day of the hunt something like that all of those intangible things coalesce into this incredible thriller and suddenly it becomes this very tense story of a whale hunt and a shipwreck and all of those characters the carpenter and pip and all of these characters you've met along the way you know come to their fate and it is just it's just biblical in its glory you know a couple things really quickly it's amazing how few i think maybe i'm wrong but how few literary figures really were rediscovered posthumously because it's so fixed in our mind the notion of the heroically starring artist I mean there's certainly many people who had some success and then fell into obscurity whoever Melville really is one I mean Melville had an early bestseller with Type E his first book because it was a true story of his experience being stranded in the South Seas among cannibals it's an incredible book it's a great book but after that, he was really kind of a horrible nobody. A professor well, it was Moby Dick that ruined him, right? Yeah. The problem was that he published this sort of unreadable, unconquerable book and then proceeded to lapse into obscurity. Right, and followed it up with the less readable Pierre, right? I mean, but a professor of mine once said, and I want, I want to throw this out to our audience uh, because I'm curious whether it's true or whether I've kind of mangled it in my poor remembrance but of it, but he claimed that um, Melville was still sort of aspiring, as he started Moby Dick, was still aspiring to the success, success of Type e, but just in a more fictionalized form and wanted to write a kind of three years before the master, whatever that book is called, uh, adventure story. And midway through it, he met Hawthorne. And it was the fact of meeting Hawthorne and seeing in his actual person a, a writer of like the highest and most serious ambition that Moby Dick takes this turn and becomes, I mean, the the total masterpiece of you know existential dread and and weirdness uh, that it is. So it's I'm, dedicated to Hawthorne in a, in a great right? dedication. Right, yeah. that. So I'm really curious. I mean, it's just such a great book. Oh, oh man, God. I got to reread that book, I think. Or maybe I'll just read the last three chapters. I read that when I was like a, so callow. I was like lifeguarding and I was 17 and I was just such a snot. And God, I a lifeguard stand is such a good place to read Moby Dick, though. Yeah, there were lots of white whales in front of me. And I just... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that is the single funniest thing said in five years on the cat fest. Oh my god. Um. <laughs> I'm not sure I agree. Yeah, I don't know quite why that strikes Steve's fancy. <laughs> there were a bunch of like obese, poached skin beachgoers, right? You weren't talking metaphorically, were you? Oh, there was one guy in particular who was like an EMT, and he, so he should have known better. And his and he was like heart attack body, heart attack age. And he his preferred way of quote unquote swimming was just to like lie prone, face down in the water, and float there for like 40 to 70 <laughs> seconds at a time, giving me a heart attack until he would just like reach up his head and go, <gasps> <gasps> and then like go back into the water. So it's just one in particular. He should have fucking known better. He drove an ambulance. Anyway, um, 
I was just such a snot. I was like, oh, wow, this book really needed to get edited. <laughs> like my fledgling editor, Julia Turner, was just like, I just, I Let's all tighten of these this up useless a little, tangents. Yeah. <laughs> I think I need to read that now that I'm older and wiser. Yes. Uh, Julia, what, uh, what do you have? My favorite thing about the Slate Retreat is dancing. It's like sad when all your friends get married, but before their kids start having bar mitzvahs, you don't get to like dance as much as you did in the, like you, when you're in your twenties, you can go dancing. Then all your friends start getting married. You get to dance every few months at somebody's wedding. Then they all start getting divorced and everybody's kids are small and there's a dancing drought, but there's a great dance party tradition at the Slate Retreat. And I love the moment when a song comes on and you're trying to figure out if it is danceable and if it is danceable for you. Like you're trying to find your groove to a particular song. And as the night gets later and later, the songs get weirder and weirder because all the, the top cuts have, have been gone through. And there was a great moment late last night where the Beyonce song EXO came on from her album from last fall, last December. Uh, and it's kind of slow and like anthemic and has a weird syncopation in it. And there was just a collective moment of everybody kind of pausing and figuring out like... Is this danceable? And then it became like euphorically danceable. Mm. So um, the song is Beyonce's XO, and I guess dancing to it. You can do that by yourself in a room, uh, and it will foster your inner life. Oh, wow. I didn't That's see you fantastic. on the dance floor last night, Steve. Do you dance? Well, my favorite thing about the Slate Retreat is the, my annual attempt not to play like a total ass clown during the soccer game that's <laughs> at 4 o'clock after we break up from the conferences. And so I just, I like busted. I, it was like, the one thing I can do out on the soccer field is just hustle and hustle and hustle. So I spend two hours. I mean, basically what I most wanted to do is make sure David Plotz's team lost. And so I was like a little terrier out there, like a terrier on cocaine, basically. And, um, and so I had nothing in the tank by the time the dance party started. Um, I'm a white whale on a soccer uh, pitch, just uh, for the record. But you're Ahab on the dance floor. Exactly. <laughs> some year. Some year um, we'll get you out there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, in celebration of our uh, status as only a podcast now, I'm going to endorse five things. <laughs> I'm going back to the old Metcalf, and y'all can go fuck y'all if you don't Andy like Bowers it. Andy is going to harpoon you. <laughs> um, no, I'm not really, but I'm going to endorse a couple of things. The first is um, I have to ask you, Dana. Okay, so there's one form of movie great inflation, which is you're amongst the uh, connoisseurs at a film festival, and your connoisseur goggles make you think everything you see is a work of genius. The, the other one is you're on a seven-hour airplane flight, and all the other members of your immediate family are asleep, and you can't drift off, and you watch the other woman and laugh hysterically through the entire thing. Um, but I then watched another movie, which I loved, and I don't know what your opinion on it is, and I'm not sure whether I love it or whether I great inflated it. Dana Stevens, The Lunchbox. Go. Oh, I haven't seen The Lunchbox. Oh! That's the Indian, the one with Irfan Khan yes! from this year. I loved it! I've heard really good things, and that's on my it. before the end of the year in case it's on the top ten movie, but I did not see it and review it. Okay, what is well, it? I don't know it. Okay, so it's very, very quickly. I don't actually know the name of the director and the writer, so I'm sorry about that, But because um, I thought I'd throw it to Dana and she would. But um, anyhow. Uh, so much for expertise. overprepared. <laughs> Anyway, um, it's uh, an Indian movie, and and the the setup is basically, and this is true, like Harvard Business School went and studied how lunches go from the private kitchens where they're cooked by independent women. women, This is in Mumbai, right? Yeah. Uh, And then sent through the, you know, highly Byzantine articulated streets of the city out to the men who are working in the offices, like highly gendered division of labor, such as it is. But that's effectively how the working office working men of, of Mumbai are fed. And it's such a precise system uh, over so many millions of different lunches and men that someone wrote a kind of iconic Harvard Business Review article about how they do it, f- from which came this notion that this might be a basis of a really interesting story in which a frustrated widower office worker, I wouldn't say frustrated, lonely widower office worker uh, is being ser- lunch serviced by a frustrated arranged marriage you know, woman um, and the two of them, because of some early snafu, uh, uh, begin exchanging notes. And it's, it's, it, to call it You've Got Mail is to say something so egregiously debasing to it that you want to cut your own head off immediately <laughs> after saying it. So it's kind of like You've Got Mail, except 
human and smart and beautiful and courageous in some ways. I thought I really liked it. Um, but I have I, I have no context other than like you know I was in a plane over the North Atlantic and bored shitless and unable to sleep so I don't really have five I only have one. Steve, such restraint. I know it's true. I'm corseted. Mohunk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Well, on that note, Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve, for dragging your sorry ass in this morning, hungover sorry ass in this morning. Julia, thank you. Thanks, guys. That was such a pleasure. Steve, before you send us out with the credits, uh, we got to let our Slate Plus listeners know. So first of all, they have their chance for early tickets to Boston. We're not actually doing a Slate Plus segment. We are doing a video interview, which will show our bedraggled and sorry asses and, and all too clear and crow's feet and, and, and lack of eye cream use. Too much detail. So you can come to this, the Slate Plus site to see that if you want uh, to hear us interviewed interrogated were we being filmed during the making of this episode you'll never know steve i also want to say that dana stevens has drawn on her notepad as notes during the show (laughs) like a little inverse pyramid of hearts (laughs) i think she's drawn like 31 hearts on a notebook and i'm going to take a picture of that on instagram so that's also sleep plus content it's not a sanatorium here Um, all all right. right All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Anne Hepperman. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cultfest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. Hello, who is that speaking, please?